cultural competency is a lifelong journey. No one's going to ever know everything. So just continue to educate yourself, check your unconscious biases and, and work um, in harmony with, with our First Nations people. We need to celebrate that we are home to the oldest living culture in the world at 68,000 years. You know, that's something that we should be extremely proud of. Hi once again everyone, welcome to Really Interesting Women, a podcast which explores the journeys of some unique, interesting and inspiring women. We'll look at how they've negotiated life's challenges and obstacles and how they've made the path a little clearer for those who follow. My name is Richard Graham and my guest today has worked for over 20 years advocating for equal rights and reconciliation of Indigenous people and has represented Indigenous Australia at the United Nations in New York on three occasions. In 2012, she was the youngest person to be elected to the West Australian International Women's Day Hall of Fame and in 2017 won Business News 40 Under 40, First Among Equals. She was also awarded Telstra Business Women Awards WA for Purpose and Social Enterprise in 2017. She was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia in 2020 for service to the Aboriginal community of Western Australia and she's currently a Director for Indigenous Affairs, Policy and Evaluation at a certified majority Indigenous-owned company providing innovative consulting services for Indigenous and non-Indigenous businesses. But most importantly, she's a proud Neapali Yinjabandi woman from the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Let me introduce you to Yana Cedar. Yana, welcome to Really Interesting Women. Thank you very much. I just... Tell me about growing up in Port Hedland. What are your abiding memories from there? What I loved about Port Hedland back in the 80s and 90s is it had a very strong community feel. Um, and so a lot of my early memories are out camping and fishing with family. Um, and generally everything either revolves around sports on the weekend or spending time with family. And you obviously had extended family there, multitudes of cousins and aunts and uncles and everything. That must have been a lot of fun as a kid. A hundred percent. And in our family structures, you know, cousins are seen as our brothers and sisters. So it was always a large crowd of people, a lot of laughter and a lot of fun. And it still is like that, I must say. Um, I love taking my children home now so they can continue to connect with family and culture. And, and the typical weekend, as you say, lots of outdoor activity and lots of sport. Yeah, you know, huge, huge uh, sporting town, a lot of um, football and rugby. Um, uh, and like I said, you know, for me, my favourite pastime is obviously camping and fishing. Fantastic. Tell me about your grandmother and Nana and why they're so important to you. Um, I, I see that uh, in particular my grandmother and my mother have um, paved the way through a lot of advocacy work themselves and standing up in some really tough and challenging spaces. Um, so seeing them really fight for social justice spurred within me a passion to want to continue in that legacy. Um, you know, it, it wasn't easy when I've seen some of the things that they've been through and, and obviously survived through, but through those difficult, uh, difficult situations, I guess, it's, it's that chance to inspire other people in sharing that story. You mentioned it then, and I imagine, well, have they told you stories of their own discriminatory treatment? Yeah, they have. Um, and I'm actually quite blessed that we have five generations still alive. My great-grandmother um, is 
still alive, who used to yandy for tin as part of the first mining revolution up in the Pilbara wow. in, in, the, um, in the 40s. So um, hearing some of the stories on how she was paid with rations and hearing about, you know, um, children being taken away when you look at past government policies and the impact that that had on many family members, um, hearing that living out in, in remote communities um, like in Marble Bar or out on pastoral stations in, around that area, it really makes me realise how fortunate I am to be where I am today because of the fights that they went through. And did that always impact their lives, that treatment? I guess it did. Um, with my family, from those that are around me, I think it stirred within them a fire to bring about change. Um, and I mean, in looking around in society today, the intergenerational traumas um, and healing that needs to happen um, it's going to continue to impact for many generations yet to come because a lot of past um, government practices were still, I mean, it was within my lifetime. So we're not talking 100 or so years ago. And so, yeah, I mean, you can still see the impact of what has occurred, but it's um, in my family we've used that as, as a fire to really bring about change and to fight for those that are, are marginalised or don't have a voice or a platform. So when you've been blessed to be given a platform, it's using it for the better. It must be very difficult to repair. That disconnect from culture and identity, incredibly hard to uh, to repair. It is. And, you know, if you're trying to not only find your own way within your own identity search, but then obviously that's impacting on your children and grandchildren. Um, mm. I, I, I stand strong in knowing who I am, what I represent. But I also appreciate that many people are still on that journey and trying to make those connections. You've said of yourself that you are dedicated to challenging perceptions and breaking down stereotypes to make a difference for Indigenous people. What do you understand those perceptions and stereotypes to be and and how do you challenge them? You challenge them by changing the narrative. Um, You know, there's too many generalisations out there. The statistics speak for themselves when you see how many Aboriginal people are incarcerated um, and yet only make up 3% of the Australian population when you see that our children are 16 times more likely to have um, a connection with the Department of Child Protection or the youth justice system. Those are the type of statistics that are truth. But how can we change that narrative? How can we now close the gap, as the government is saying, um, and bring about equity? You know, And there's a huge equality versus equity argument, and I stand firm in equity, not everybody can be treated the same because everybody has different experiences and needs. Um, it's like a, putting the, the square peg in a circle hole. It's not going to work. Mm. So to bring about change, you, you really need to stand strong and firm and work inclusively with those that are requiring the change because change will only be successful with inclusion. Um, and, you know, changing the way that people are seen within media as well, we need to stop the negative portrayals and start celebrating the successes of many of our, our First Nations people. You've written articles about having to walk in two worlds, i.e. balancing the Western world with cultural responsibilities. How do you negotiate that and what effect does that have on you? I think uh, for many of us it kind of comes naturally and trying to explain it sounds really difficult. We need to code, squ- uh, code switch all day and so... Um, how I introduce myself, how I may speak, 
um, the, you know, with the language that I use in, in a Western world uh, would be completely different to how I am within my cultural aspect. That also brings challenges and conflicts, though, because sometimes our cultural responsibilities conflict with the responsibilities that we have in a Western world. And so navigating through some of those conflicts is really difficult. But to do so, you surround yourself with a really strong support network of people that you can lean on. And that's where, you know, I, I'm very lucky to have um, some great cultural influences and leaders in my life that I can speak to when I am in those situations. I was, I was going to mention that because it, it's not something that non-Indigenous have ever had to deal with. And, and I've always thought it's hard enough to live in one world, but having to straddle two and then potentially be ostracised from both to an extent, it takes a very special person to negotiate that. You mentioned a support network being very important. How do you go about building it? It just comes with the development of rapport and trust. And so identifying people who you can trust and and be completely vulnerable with, but at the same time that you know are going to give you complete honesty in in their um, feedback or suggestions when they're speaking to you. So I have identified some people that I see as mentors in my life that I lean on and uh, seek um, cultural advice from if if it's within my cultural world or seek obviously professional advice from in in my day-to-day job. Um, and ensuring that I continue to maintain and nurture those relationships is integral to my own business. Do you think there's a real benefit in women mentoring other women? There is. And, and something that I personally had to learn is don't feel shame to share your story because you don't know who you're inspiring through sharing that story. Many people may be facing situations that you yourself have been through and can learn from your own learnings of those situations. So... You know, mentoring, supporting, collaborating and, and building the confidence of, of other women is important. We need to stop tearing down other women. There's a lot of um, jealousy and, and particularly lateral violence that is occurring. And I think the more we can unify our voices and work together, then the stronger our position will be moving forward. I mentioned in the intro your consulting services organisation. Can you tell me about your work with IPS management consultants and what that organisation does? IPS Management Consultants is majority an Indigenous-owned mainstream professional consulting business and we work across four service lines in organisational development and leadership, business advisory, Indigenous advisory and research policy and evaluation. And what we do is, um, as a national business, we work together to, to support our clients, but more importantly, through the work that we do, we're able to then give back to communities through sponsorship pro bono support, uh, volunteering in community and, and helping in community events. We, um, we're passionate, as that being one of our main drivers in business. We look at our values of inspire, purpose, service and opportunities. And, um, you know, all of that, again, comes back to all of us being aligned to know what it is that we're here for. Um, and we deliver a lot of training and, and um, stakeholder engagement work when it comes to community specifically because it's our way to build up, empower and, and develop capability within community to really be self-empowered and determined moving forward. Mm. Just changing tack slightly, in terms of career highs, I mentioned you're having represented Indigenous people at the United Nations on three occasions, an incredible honour and a long way from Port Hedland. What was that experience like and what was the message you were bringing them? So the first time I went, I was... 16 um, 
And at that time, it was developing the rights of the child, and I was part of the, the APSIC delegation at that time. And that was quite daunting. Um, you wouldn't Imagine. believe it, but I, I am an introvert. So oh, right. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> being surrounded by a lot of people um, was extremely intimidating, and obviously being on the other side of the world. What was more challenging was coming from Port Hedland in summer to go to New York in winter and trying oh. to locate clothes before I left in order to stay warm when I got there. Um, the second time I went was to really look at the importance of women within the STEM-related employment fields and how we can try and um, diversify our Indigenous women entering into that space. And then finally, it was really pushing how, through the Commission on the Status of the Women, we can uh, acknowledge and really show the significance of the contribution of First Nations women around the world in what we're doing within um, within our countries. And so... The third time we went, we were able for the first time in the Commission on the Status of Women's History to get some strong, tangible actions put in place on Indigenous women in particular. So learning how to lobby international government, coming together and, and learning other best practice frameworks from other countries that we can bring back here to Australia was really empowering um, and definitely a career high of mine. And so you felt people were very receptive to you and the rest of the contingent that went there? Uh, yeah, each country obviously has um, their own framework or, or vision of what it is that they believe success to be or what it is their mandate is in being there. But I found um, with the Australian contingent, not just of government, of, um, you know, uh, uh, us that were part of the government delegation but not government employees, and also the NGO sector that were there, we're all very aligned and passionate about really advancing our First Nations voices and respecting the voice and the history and skills and knowledges that were within the room. Right. Yana, uh, I've heard you speak about the effect on you and your outlook by having children. How did that affect your outlook? Um, prior to children, I, I've always had this, obviously, as I said, this passion and fire to want to do better for those that are, are less fortunate. Um, but having children really made me realise I need to do something with my life and leave a legacy for them to, you know, um, to then continue to live their lives. And whatever I can do to try and bring about um, a safer and more culturally safe space for them to grow up in, then, then that's, um, I've done something well. I want them to be proud of their culture and proud of their history, understand the importance of truth-telling as to how we got to where we are. But I don't want them to face the, the same discrimination, the unconscious bias, the racial attitudes that I've seen myself um, in community. And so it's equipping them with the necessary skills and resilience to really navigate through that. Is there a point, Yana, where you just can't be a pleaser to everyone, even within the Indigenous community itself, and, and you have to do what you believe in your heart to be the right thing? Yeah, and I've been faced with that a lot. Um, unfortunately, as I said, natural violence does raise its head and it's really hard to get through. There are times when you're completely at a loss of how you're going to get through a situation because you are so conflicted with the decision-making under the two different worlds and responsibilities. Um, you know, there's sometimes you're not popular with the decisions that you make or, or the statements that you make because it's impacting somebody else and their, and their ways of being possibly negatively, um, and so with that comes threats and abuse. And at one stage, I didn't know how to deal with that, and it did break me, um, and I, I did have a breakdown. But from that, again, 
through getting through that showed me that I was stronger than I ever thought I could be. I was braver than I ever thought I could be, and um, that I needed to continue doing what I was doing because I was obviously doing something right. I recently that that resonates with me because I spoke with uh, the Australian fashion icon Carla Zampatti, who sad, sadly passed away not long after we spoke, and she told me that at one stage she basically lost everything and had to start a business again with nothing but a name, but she fought her way out of that, and she said fighting that adversity made her so strong and believe in herself so much that she could do anything. Did that? So that, that seems to resonate with you as well, Yana. Yeah, it does. And people often ask me, would I change anything about that tough time? Uh, and I don't think I would because, again, I learned so much about myself and about my people throughout that process. And um, I wouldn't maybe have got to where I am today if I did not actually get into that situation. Do you think leadership is an inherent trait or can it be an acquired skill? Interesting question. Um, I believe it can be an acquired skill with the relevant self-awareness, acknowledgement and and um, receptiveness to learn, I mm. believe. Mm. But leadership isn't something that somebody can self-label. I think um, leadership means that there's people that are willing to follow you and, and support you, but more importantly that you're willing to, to stand up um, and, and make statements that may not make you popular, but it's been done with the best of intention. Yeah. Yeah, so, so is there anything young women, and in particular young Indigenous women, can do to prepare themselves for leadership roles? The first thing is don't put too much on your uh, pressure on yourself, thinking that you have to be a leader or that you're having to follow somebody else. Live your own life and live your own dream uh, and, and live up to what it is that you're aspiring to be because I believe regardless of the colour of your skin, anybody can do and be whatever they want to be. It's just about um, making the right decisions in order to get yourself there. And know that, you know, it's okay to fail because through failure it means you're willing to take a risk. But failure also brings about opportunities to learn and improve. Um, and, you know, again, it, it teaches us about ourselves through our own failures and that's where innovation comes from. So, yeah, just don't put too much pressure on yourself and just try and surround yourself with the best support network that you can. The Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, seems to me to have shone a light on the benefits of compassion and empathy in leadership. Do you think Australian political leaders show enough of that? I, I probably can't generalise on all. There's some that I don't believe do, but then there's some amazing uh, political leaders that definitely show a lot of empathy uh, and, and they, they walk with their heart on their, uh, on their sleeve. I mean, Lydia Thorpe just recently standing out and making some of the statements that she did on the Indigenous Advancement Strategy funding to me showed leadership because it was a courageous move and statements to make to really bring about accountability. And that's what we need within our in our government system is people that are willing to stand up and speak for the less fortunate and, and hold people accountable to the commitments and, and statements that they make. So do you think you have to be a disruptor to achieve change? I don't believe you have to be a disruptor. I just believe you need to be authentic um, and and willing to um, navigate some challenges. You don't necessarily have to disrupt in order to bring about change. Just yeah, I'm all about authenticity. Um, if people that are going in there that are not authentic and bringing about change, then to me is where the self-interest comes in rather than the collective. Mm. Mm. 
this is probably an unfair question without notice, but what are some of the key things that non-Indigenous people can do to make your job as an advocate for the Indigenous easier? Um, there needs to be truth-telling. We need to acknowledge that what has happened in the past has happened and stop trying to diminish the impact of what has happened. As I said, it's happened in my lifetime, so it's not talking a long time ago. And um, it's about, you know, uh, being inclusive when it comes to designing programs and projects. It's working inclusively through a co-design lens with Aboriginal people and communities. Because with, um, it's about you know making change with us, not for us. Understanding and accepting that there are differences, and go and educate yourself. Like this, cultural competency is a lifelong journey. No one's going to ever know everything. So just continue to educate yourself, check your unconscious biases, and and work um, in harmony with, with our First Nations people. We need to celebrate that we are home to the oldest living culture in the world at 68,000 years. You know, that's something that we should be extremely proud of. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, wh- why do you think there's a reluctance? Uh, the truth, to, oh, Everything that you've said just makes so much sense that it's ridiculous. It seems quite an easy roadmap. But why are we so reluctant, especially on this point of truth-telling, do you think? I honestly don't know. I don't know whether it's um, guilt and again, you can't be guilty of something you didn't do. So that's not what's being asked for when we're talking about truth-telling. It's actually just acknowledging that what has happened has happened and don't try to cover up what has happened with falsehoods and lies. It's, um, you know, it's really just being courageous. Again, checking those unconscious biases. Why are we trying to hide parts of our history? Because that hasn't got us to where we are today. And... Um, yeah, standing up in this country, if we're a multicultural country, let's stand up and, and celebrate the diversity that comes with it rather than trying to hide some of the challenges that have got us mm. where we are. Mm. I mean, there, there, there are so many challenges for you, so, so, much, uh, so much courage is needed. You have to develop so much resilience uh, and determination. What keeps you, Yana, from walking away to a simpler life? I tried that, and I think I lasted about three weeks. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I said I was going to get a simpler life, and I resigned from my previous employer and then uh, took up this opportunity quite quickly. And then I said I wasn't going to study because I wanted some time for myself. But uh, the month later, I enrolled in an MBA. said I was going to jump off some boards, but um, that didn't last long either. I think it's just because this is my calling. And when, mm. it, when it's inherently a passion of yours, you feel like it's something you're wanting to do every moment because every moment you don't do something is a lost opportunity. Um, And so, like I said, I'm very lucky to have a supportive family that gives me the space and time that I need to do what I do and and hopefully do inspire other people and bring about the change that I'm so passionately striving for. I read an article written just last week where the Western Australian Department of Education has begun the first step in the process that will allow Noongar language to be formally taught in schools. Does that give you cause for optimism that we're slowly moving in the right direction? Yeah, I was smiling ear to ear when I saw that. Um, I know when I went to primary school uh, in the 80s in South Edland, we were learning uh, Noongar language at the time. 
I guess one of the complexities when you're thinking about our, our Aboriginal language is that prior to colonisation, that we had over 250 languages here in, in this country. We now have 100, uh, 145 now are still spoken, of which wow. 110 are endangered. Wow. And so trying to, I guess, first, which language would you teach in each area, then finding the relevant language teachers to be able to speak those dialects, um, is a great opportunity to stop those languages becoming extinct and revitalise and preserve that important part of our culture. Where would you like Australia to be in 10 years' time as regards the recognition and treatment of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islands people in this country? I want there to be acknowledgement of truth. I would love for there to be... um, Aboriginal people within Parliament that are there for Aboriginal people. And I understand through the current government restraints, when you do have an Aboriginal minister, they're actually there under the portfolio and and restrictions of their government policies. So it would be great to have an Aboriginal voice in Parliament that can speak specifically for Aboriginal people and and Aboriginal rights. An acknowledgement um, of, of Aboriginal people as our First Nations within our constitution. But that is just the beginning of an ongoing dialogue um, of about bringing about social change, justice and equity. So knowing that that'll probably take 10 years within itself, I don't want to try and think too big, too broad, too soon, but a small step. Are you optimistic, Yana Cedar? You have to be. You've got to be a glass half full kind of person. Otherwise, you're going to be approaching everything from a deficit language and attitude. So to remain optimistic is what's going to bring about that proactive change. And I have a final question that I ask all my guests, Jana, and thank you so much for your time. What makes you most proud of yourself? My children. <laughs> That's lovely. It's such, it's such a common response and it's such a good one. And with all you've done, that's the, most, uh, the thing that makes you most proud. That's, that's so good. Yana Sita, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an honour to have you to be such an important part of really interesting women. And I hope your message is really heard by the politicians and the rest of the country and they respond with action and empathy. No, I appreciate the time. Thank you very much. No problems. Bye for now. Thank you for being a big part of Really Interesting Women. We'll have relevant links in the show notes to this episode. Head to our Instagram page at richardinstagram.com For photos of the guests and the all-important link to all the episodes in our bio. If you know someone who might be a great guest, direct message me from Insta. Thank you to our production team and I look forward to your company again very soon. Bye for now.